0: This message first aired on the radio on January 20th, 2004. As we come into the end of the third chapter and the beginning of the fourth chapter of 1 Corinthians... We notice uh, rather overwhelmingly that we're taken up with the thought of judgment as the apostle leads us from the problem of division inside the church, the problem of party spirit, the problem of that worldly spirit that organizes men after their self-selected leaders. We, We see that we're brought into the realm and the thought of the judgment that is due us and that we will in fact face at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, how does the apostle bring us there? Well, first he brings us there by telling us that the spiritual man judges all things. Now that spiritual man, that's speaking of the new nature. It is not talking about someone who has attained to a certain spiritual quality. When he talks about the spiritual man, he's talking about the inward man as opposed to the carnal man or the old nature that the Corinthians have course, 1 Corinthians only understood very well with a pretty good understanding of the book of Romans, so that we understand, uh, for example, that we have a new nature and that we can rely upon the Word of God with the new nature in directing our paths uh, in the proper way. Now, the Corinthians are acting as mere men. In fact, we read that in 1 Corinthians 3 3. You are yet carnal, he writes. Where, uh, as there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men, or as mere men, or walk according to the old nature? And the answer to that is yes, of course, they do. And the way they do that is one says, I'm of Paul, and another, I'm of Apollos. Now, he uses the example of uh, himself and Apollos. uh, There were other parties that were organized in Corinth. But he used the example of himself and Apollos because Apollos had recently left from where the Apostle is writing this epistle. He had left from Ephesus, gone to Corinth to water there to get some fruit. And uh, the Apostle points out, well, we, I and Apollos, are fellow laborers. And you are God's work. And so there should not be any disharmony here. There should not be any division here or some, any discrepancy here. And then he points out, and what we, we, he points out the need for each one to stand before the judgment seat of christ well he doesn't write it exactly that way but he does talk about the judgment seat of christ it was referred to in the epistle of the romans specifically and it's referred to in second corinthians we'll see that in the next letter very specifically and it's referred here to generally in the way that it's going to take place and also when it will take place uh in the fourth chapter but here he he brings to the attention of the corinthians Uh, That uh, there's no problem with Paul, there's no problem with Apollos, and now he seems to indicate that behind the scenes there are these problem fellows. Now they're unnamed here, and they're only broadly referenced, but uh, behind this whole matter of division, there are individuals leading the schism. There are such individuals. And they're not named, we don't need them named apparently here in uh, to understand the epistle well, and the Corinthians know very well who they are. These unnamed fellows are busy for their own for their own pleasure, and for their own bellies, as we're taught in Romans, for their own inward desires, their own hidden agendas that have to do with the lust of their flesh. They are leading these divisions and these distinctions among Christians. Some say, well, this is the foundation of denominationalism. Well, very well it is. But the denominations that are named after individuals doesn't mean that those individuals are the ones that created the schism. It is others who have their own agenda. And you say, well, what agenda could it be? Well, there's only really three things that men want. Sex, money, and power and we'll see that all three of those things are in bad shape, that they've invaded uh, the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life have all invaded the Corinthian church. But the apostle now points out that everyone's work will be made manifest at a day yet coming. Maybe it won't be made clear today uh, what each one is doing, but there is a day coming, verse 13, every man's work will be made manifest for the day shall declare it. Now you say, what day is that? That is the day that he referred to back in the first in the first chapter, where he said that the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 8 of chapter 1, who will establish you until the end that you may be blameless in the day of uh, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this day is yet coming, and men have their day today. And we'll look at that when we get to 1 Corinthians 4 here in just a little bit. Men will have, are having their day, But the day of Jesus Christ is no less certain because it's not occurring right now. And here at that day, he said, everything will be made manifest. Every man's work will be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work what sort it is. If any man's work abides which he has built thereupon, he will receive a reward. That's 1 Corinthians three fourteen. If any man's work shall be burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet as through fire. Some will just say, well, you see, he's still saved. Yes, he's still saved. There's no question, by the way, uh, that if you've received the gift of eternal life, you're a brother in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life, you are saved. But that does not mean that your Christian life will be saved. Your Christian life may go up in smoke. You say, well, what is your Christian life? Well, it does not consist, your life does not consist, as the Lord Jesus Christ said, of the abundance of the things you have. Your life consists of, of those works of faith which God has prepared for you to walk in. And we'll see, I guess, at the judgment seat of Christ if we walked in them or not. Now, that being said, what does a man, it says he'll suffer loss. Well, what does he lose? He loses his Christian life. That is to say, he loses that which could be achieved and that which could be rewarded in his Christian life. So what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul or life, as it may fairly be translated? That is the answer to the question. Now, the apostle, even at the end of chapter 3, uh, got a little more pointed. He said, if any man defiles the temple of God, God shall destroy him, for the temple of God is holy which temple you are." Now here he's actually uh, pointing out the consequences and I believe he has specific individuals in mind. He may not know exactly who they are but he knows that they're there in the Corinthian church. These are those, uh, the word here defile means destroy or mar or scratch or nick or damage. The one that damages the temple of God, it's the exact same word, God will damage him. And so when you damage the church, when you damage the local church, God promises that he will damage you. Well, what damage is that? That is the law suffered at the judgment seat of Christ. And then he says in verse 18 even more strongly, Let no man deceive himself. If any man seems to be wise among you in this world, let him become a fool or a moron, as the case may be here, as the word may fairly be translated, that he may be wise. And so what has happened is that worldly wisdom came into the Corinthian church, and overtook the instruction of the apostle. It overtook the wisdom of God that was in the apostle's doctrine. It overtook the way of the Spirit. And so instead of the Corinthians taking the word of God out to the lusty Corinthian community, instead the lusty Corinthian community was invading the local church in Corinth and the means of men, sex, money, and power, the wisdom of men, and their erudition and their degree programs and every other thing that man invents to establish himself in arrogance against God came into the Corinthian church and was being honored and lifted up above the things of God. And we should not be surprised about this. We should not. Not only should we not be surprised about it, we should be able to recognize it in our own midst, and we should be able to realize that God ensconced this Corinthian experience in the printed word of God, in the written word of God, put Putting absolute words upon it for all this age, this age of the church which is his body, so that we would understand how to deal with these things. My friend, let me tell you, there's not one error in practice or doctrine that can happen in a local church that isn't addressed in the scripture. When it comes to error, when it comes to division, when it comes to sin in the local church, there's nothing new under the sun. All of it has been referenced in the scriptures, and we turn to the scriptures to find the solution. So the apostle now concludes as he leads to discuss further his own judgment and his own ministry. He says, well, so don't let anyone glory in men. We don't want to have the boastful pride of life which characterizes the world. All things spiritual are yours. Uh, Everything to come is already yours. You're in Christ. Uh, You are Christ's. Christ is God's. And now he turns in the fourth chapter to the way that they should be regarded, because not only, and that is himself and the apostolic company that's with him, because not only were these individuals creating divisions and party spirit in Corinth, but obviously they were opposing the apostle himself. And uh, this was a sad uh, thing that the apostle has to do in almost every place. He has to defend his apostleship. He has to assert his authority because there are those waiting in the wings to usurp uh, his authority. And no surprise, the enemy of our faith and the enemy of our souls, Satan himself, is a usurper above all else. He wanted to usurp the place of the Lord Jesus Christ and when God made known in his plan that man, by making him in his image and likeness, that man was going to be given dominion in the universe, Satan did not lie down and accept that. He also wants to usurp the position of man. So here the apostle in the fourth chapter, which is not a necessarily a naturally good division in First Corinthians, says, "...let a man so account of us as the ministers or servants of Christ." And here now, the emphasis is on the word minister here. Let a man uh, regard ourselves, or reckon, let a man think about us in this way, that we are the servants of Christ. We serve Christ. Now, if you account that the apostle is the servant of Christ, then you will account his authority as one who is serving the Lord and you'll submit uh, to his counsel and to his writing. And of course, this was a problem in the early church, with submission to the apostle's authority. No surprise. It's a problem today for the churches to submit to the authority of the written word, to the apostolic authority, not that's in any man, because there are no apostles, but to the apostolic authority that is embedded in the scripture. Same problem today as then. He said, let someone regard us, or reckon us, or think about us in this way, twofold. Servant of Jesus Christ, steward of the mysteries of God. Now, this word steward, uh, this is the word okonomos. Uh, this has to do with the uh, dispensation that was given to the apostle he's the steward of the mysteries of god no one else was given Uh, the mysteries that the Apostle Paul was given, so that even Peter in his epistle could write that Paul has written some things difficult to understand that they that wrestle the other scriptures also won't understand. And now he says, all right, so if you'll think about us as servants of Jesus Christ and stewards of the mystery of God, you can also think further this way. Moreover, he said, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful that a man be found faithful." Now this is required in all stewards of God. Anyone who portends to be a minister of Christ, anyone who portends to put forward the mysteries of God, the teaching of the scripture, it must, it is required, it is an absolute essential. uh, The the first, in fact, it's like this, the first characteristic sought out in a steward as that he is faithful. This is now uh, God's very minimum requirement that his stewards are faithful. Now, how can a preacher be faithful? How do you know the faithfulness of a preacher? Well, first and foremost uh, with a preacher, he must be faithful to the Word of God. Now, faithful in in speech and faithful in practice. So, So his practice should not belie his speech, but his speech must line up with the Scriptures. And today, it it seems to be regarded as an unloving thing to correct or to disagree with someone in the Scriptures, when in fact, in order to be faithful as a preacher, one must first be faithful to the text of the Scripture. That's a, that should be a simple matter. Also faithful, of course, in life to decorate or properly accentuate the Scripture, faithful to its commands. Well, here it is, the apostle says, now this is the first thing that must be found. This is the quality first sought in a steward of the mysteries of God. Now he says, I, and I don't, now he tells them something that I don't think they'd like to hear. He said, I don't even care what you think of me. It doesn't matter to me what you think of me. Verse 3. With me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or of man's day. Yea, I judge not my own self. Well, he's opened up a very interesting subject here. And we're going to drill down on it when we come back after this brief announcement. And maybe a nice hymn for your enjoyment. Well, as we look at 1 Corinthians 4, verse 3. Where the apostle says, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or of man's judgment. It reads best, man's day. In fact, it reads accurately, man's day. Yea, I judge nothing of my own self. And so the idea here of man's day is thrown into this mix, back with 1 Corinthians 3, where we saw operationally, the judgment seat of Christ, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we're told uh, that the Lord will establish us until the day of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we're focused on this notion of the day of the Lord, or the Lord's day, which is not a day of the week, but we're thinking of the Lord's day, or the day of Christ, which is coming. We're seeing contrasted here, man's day. So this we live in today, friends, man's day. This is the day when God is not manifesting his judgment on men. Yet there is a day coming when he will. There is a day coming when God will manifest his judgment upon the Gentiles and upon the world. In fact, we can read about it in uh, various locations. Uh, One place we can see it, for example, is we can see it in Jeremiah chapter 46 and verse 10 where we read for this is the day of the lord god of hosts a day of vengeance that he may avenge of his adversaries and the sword shall devour and it shall be satiated and made drunk with their blood for the lord god of hosts has a sacrifice in the north country by the river euphrates this is the great and terrible day of the lord which is coming that is not today That is not today. Today is man's day. Today is the day that man is, in his arrogance, certainly believing that the day of the Lord will never come. Now, for the believer, of course, there is still that day coming. It is not the day of vengeance against the believer, certainly. We've been delivered from all wrath, whether man's wrath, Satan's wrath, or God's wrath. But here we have for the believer this out of Psalm 118 verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them, and I will praise the Lord, this gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. Verse 22. The stone which the builders refused is become headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes verse 24 this is the day which the Lord has made we will rejoice and be glad in it now this is not today this is a day yet coming this is the day of our gladness you remember that the scripture teaches us that we're to look unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him set before him in time endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God the Father. This joy, this day of joy, was set before the Lord Jesus Christ in time, and it is set before us in time. This is the day that the Lord has made. We'll rejoice and be glad in it. In the meantime, we have joy, we have joy uh, based on our future expectation, we have joy based on our hope, but in this world, if all of our hope was just in this present age, we would be, of all men, the biggest morons. That is what the scripture teaches us, and we'll come to that yet, that thought. But now here the apostle says some things that are instructive to all of us. We see the way that he lived. And the way that he lived, of course, is the commendable way for us to live. He said it's a small thing to be judged by the Corinthians. He didn't care for it. It didn't bother him what they thought of him. It didn't bother him what the world thought of him. And we'll see here later in 1 Corinthians 4 how the world regarded the apostles. And we'll see why it is that the Lord warned us to be careful uh, when all men speak well of us. We should be skeptical of such an idea. Well, the apostle certainly didn't have to worry about that happening to him. He said, it's a small thing that you judge me. I don't care what the world thinks. It it doesn't even matter what I think about myself. That's what he says. He says, the one that judges me is the Lord. He he says, verse 4, I know nothing against myself. He said, I don't have any charges to bring against myself. He's already brought his charges against himself. This is what every Christian should do. They confess their sins. Bring your own charges against yourself. Set up your own judgment seat. Sit on it. Call yourself guilty before God and confess your sins. He said, I know nothing against myself. That means he had done that, yet I'm not hereby justified. But he that judges me is the Lord. Now here's the apostle saying he's not justified. I did a series on this, on two justifications. If you go to our archive website, you can see some messages that are around those themes. But here's an apostle that wrote Book of Romans saying that he is justified and saying that he's not justified. So how can he say that he is justified and he's not justified? The only way he can say that is that there are two justifications, one that he has already passed and one that he is waiting for. In fact, that's true. There are two justifications. There's the justification that we enjoy here below, the justification that we have as forgiven sinners when we receive Christ as our Savior that's included in the new birth. Then there is the justification of our work. The justification of our works. Not by our works. It's not the justification by our works. It is the justification of our works. And so we see that Abraham was not justified by faith only, but also works. When he offered Isaac up on the altar, you look at James chapter 2, you'll see two justifications in the life of Abraham, one at the beginning of his life of faith and one near the end of his life of faith. Here with the apostle, he said, I don't know anything against myself. I don't care what you think. I don't care what the world thinks. The Lord judges me, but I'm not justified uh, except Uh, that the Lord does it. And then he says, verse 5, in case you're wondering, in case you think that uh, that I'm taking this out of the proper time frame, he writes this in verse 5, Therefore I judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes. Now that means he does not evaluate himself as having become successful. He does not regard himself as having attained a passing mark at the judgment seat of Christ. In fact, we'll see that in 1 Corinthians 9 he says he fears That lest after having preached to others, he himself would become disqualified. We also see him in the book of Philippians writing that he does not consider himself to have attained as yet, but he forgets the things that are behind, and he reaches forward to press for the mark of the prize of the calling on high in Christ Jesus. And yes, friends, it is not the gift of God that is in question at the judgment seat of Christ. It is the prize of the calling on high, which God offers to every one of us as he offers us in our calling, a higher calling. So he says, Judge, therefore, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 5, nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts. Now, we can only see partially today about you by your behavior. We can judge your behavior. We can hear your speech. You can see my behavior. You can hear my speech. And you can judge to the extent that those reveal what is on my heart. You can judge what is on my heart. But there are so many counsels of the heart that are hidden, not only from others, but even from ourselves. And the apostles saying, when the Lord comes, he'll bring to light the hidden things of darkness. Now, that that doesn't do you any good to hide stuff uh, today from God, because he will bring it to light. And, of course, uh, you can't really hide anything from God. Uh, he sees it. So, so what does it mean that he'll bring it to light? Well, it won't be bringing it to light to himself. At the judgment seat of Christ, things will be brought to light to our own selves. You say, well, I don't want everything disclosed to everybody else. What you ought to remember is that God will bring to light things to you and make manifest the counsel of the hearts. And then, and only then, that is to say, after that, shall each one have praise of God, and, by the way, not of men. And so this is the great test of the believer. Will we live a private, faithful life before God, or will we live a political life like the world does before our brothers, and before uh, the world, and will we try to make the best of this world for ourselves? If so, we will suffer tremendous loss at the judgment seat of Christ, and the disappointment of that loss will bring you to both weep and gnash your teeth, that I'm sure of. Well, verse 6, These things, brethren, have I in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men... Above that, which is written, that no one of you would be blown up or puffed up for one against another. Now he says, look, I've used the analogy that I planted and and Apollos watered. I transferred this issue to me and Apollos and pointed out to you that we get along just fine as fellow laborers. Uh, I did that for your sake, that you would learn not to think of men too highly, whether it's me or Apollos above that which is written. Now, of course, here he has his apostleship also to defend. So they shouldn't think too highly, but they ought to also think highly enough. And we'll come to that as we go through these verses. Now he says, don't think too highly of men that one of you doesn't get puffed up against another one. Now, this is a play on words by the apostle. He's pointed out that they are God's building, and he's warned the workers in the Corinthian assembly that they need to be those who build up the temple of God. If they do destruction to it, God will do destruction to them. That is, if they mar the temple, God will mar them. If they gouge the church in Corinth, God will gouge them at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, here it says, don't be puffed up one against another. This is a word very similar to the word built up. And uh, it really means to be blown up like an air balloon. And, of course, uh, when something is blown up like an air balloon, it's unsubstantial. Uh, when something is built up like a building, it is something substantial. So we have those thoughts, lack of substance and substance. And we have the other one that's just full of air and the other one that is uh, solid material. And so this is an excellent example. Some are puffing themselves up and just blowing hot air. Others are building up substantially according to the plan of God. What is being built? Well, we don't decide what is being built. God decides what is being built. We merely decide how we build. And I want to remind us that the apostle warned these about not what they built, but how they built. And the way they were building in arrogance, in worldly means, by worldly wisdom was resulting in a party spirit and a puffing up of one against another and not a building up of one another. Verse seven, who makes you to differ from another? What have you that you did not receive? In other words, what do you have that wasn't just freely given to you? Now, if you did receive it, why are you glorying as if though you had not received it, or that you had somehow attained it or earned it? After all, the gift of God is the gift of God. Why are you acting as if you've earned something or achieved something? You haven't earned or achieved anything. It was given to you. Everything that you have that's of value was given to you. He says, verse 8, now you are full. Now you are rich. You have reigned as kings without us. I would to God you did reign that we also might reign with you." Now he's pointing out that they're living outside this present dispensation. And friends, let me tell you today, there is a theology afoot that tells you that you're supposed to reign now. Well, it's consistent here, of course, with 1 Corinthians, because these carnal people were thinking they were reigning now. They thought they would reign now. They're criticized. The Apostle Paul says, "'You act as if you're rich, and you reign as kings.'" Without, by the way, the apostles. The, the apostles are the offscouring in the world. We'll see this. The apostles are hated by the world. The apostles are treated as vagabonds. But here now, the Corinthians, in their carnal way, are acting as if they're reigning. Does that sound familiar today, friends? I mean, this is actually being taught in churches today that it's time for us to reign now. Well, it is not time for us to reign now. The Lord Jesus Christ isn't reigning right now. He's seated at the right hand. He'll come back and he'll rule and reign here on the earth. He ought to at least have his way in the church of God. But no, these didn't want to wait. These didn't want to wait until the qualification time came of the Lord Jesus Christ, who will place in rulership whomsoever he decides. Here, you are full, you are rich, you have reigned as kings without us. Now he this is a bit of irony. He says, I would to God you did reign, that we might reign with you. Yeah, I would be glad if it was the right time to reign, the apostle said, because then I'd get to reign too, and I'd be rewarded if you reigned. In fact, if the Corinthians qualify to reign with Christ then the apostle will be rewarded according to his works in bringing them to that qualification. There is a day coming when the Lord Jesus Christ will decide who will rule and reign with him. The scripture teaches us, if we suffer with him, we'll reign with him. That is, if we endure in the faith, if we stay inside the bounds of faith, if we stay upon the principle of by grace through faith, then we'll reign with him. And we'll see about that. The day will declare it. Not this day, but the day of Christ, which is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ catches up to meet him in the air and commences the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be back with the rest of chapter 4 following this brief interlude. Now, as we take up the rest of the fourth chapter, we're impressed that the Apostle turns to his personal qualifications. This is a sorry thing that he has to do to defend himself, to defend his ministry. He doesn't defend himself to justify himself. He defends himself in order to qualify his ministry that his ministry would be properly received and continue with the Corinthians. And he cannot escape nor neglect the fact that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ and that's a very strong statement that he has to make when he has to call upon his authority. But he points out the contrast of the way the Corinthians are regarding themselves in the world, and very possibly the way the world regards the Corinthians, compared to the way the Apostles are regarded by the world. And friendship with the world is enmity against God. We ought not expect to get along well in the world The best we can hope for is to be left alone. That's to be our prayer. But the world loves its own, and it hates the Lord Jesus Christ, and it hates those that follow him. So here we have in verse 9 the apostle pointing out the conditions of life, of what it was like to be an apostle, what it was like to be him. He said, well, how would you like to be me? Here it is, verse 9. For I think that God has sent forth us, the apostles' last Now, that's not just last among all men here. That's last in the line of God's messengers. So he says, I think that God has set forth us, the apostles, last, which would be after the prophets. The greatest of the prophets was John the Baptist. Here the apostles set last in that line, as it were appointed to death, for we are made a spectacle unto the world to angels and to men. Now, here he says, uh, we apostles are the world's theater we're the world's entertainment we are made a theater literally unto the world both to angels and men it says we're a spectacle in the heavens or a spectacle on the earth god has put us on stage to be despised by men and angels this is the foolishness of the preaching here he says for we are fools for christ's sake this is the world's point of view the world's point of view is that the apostles are morons. Now, this was also the point of view, apparently, of some in Corinth. I would suppose that there were those in Corinth that called the apostle a moron, because his speech wasn't great. Maybe those who fashioned themselves after Apollo said, well, Apollos is a great speaker, and Paul is kind of a dummy. Maybe that's what they were saying. Whatever they were saying, he pointed out that it is God's arrangement that men and angels in the theater of the world, find the apostles to be fools. But he says, but we are fools for Christ's sake. He says, you are wise in Christ. You are wise. We're fools. You're wise. In Christ, we're weak. You're strong. You're honorable. We are despised. Now he's pointing out, why is it so different with you than it is with us apostles whom Christ has chosen to lead the faith. And, of course, they ought to ask themselves that. Why is there such a vast difference between the way we are treated and the way we regard ourselves and the way that the apostles are treated and the way the apostles regard themselves? And, of course, there's a huge world of message in that very statement. said, we're fools, you're wise. We're weak, you're strong. We're despised, and you're honorable. What's up with that? Verse 11, even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We're naked. We're buffeted. We have no certain dwelling place. We labor, working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Now, I want to mention a couple of these things. These guys, were the apostles, were hungry and thirsty. They didn't have clothing. They were deprived even the necessities of life. They were beat up. The apostle had a messenger from Satan specifically assigned to him, and that messenger had a message, and the message was, Beat up Paul, and that's what happened to him. Sosthenes, the one here named at the first part of this epistle, having come from Corinth, very possibly continuing with Paul, but having a special ministry to the Corinthians, Sosthenes knew what it was like to be the apostle Paul. When he got dragged at the judgment seat of uh, Gallio by, uh, uh, by a bunch of thugs, really, by a bunch of lawless thugs, and beaten, he all of a sudden he knew what it was like, a little something, what it was like to be an apostle, to, to be beaten, and to be w- bereft of necessities of life. In fact, here's another, here's another thing that marked the apostolic company that, by the way, doesn't mark very many preachers today. We labor working with our own hands. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Here you see the apostles and the apostolic company. They worked. They labored with their own hands. They were not given the ease, which I'm certain those who were leading the factions in Corinth were taking to themselves. The apostle did not negotiate a salary package with the church at Corinth. He did not have a salary and benefits package. I see today churches that have no preachers, Or they can't find them in their congregation. They're probably there. They just probably don't let them preach. And they go out and they get hirelings at enormous packages. And they take a long time to negotiate their packages. Just like the world does. Just like the world does. That is not how the apostles were. They had no such thing. And they labored with their own hands. In fact, had to. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. Verse 13, they were defamed. They were spoken very poorly of. We are made as the filth of the world or as the sweepings of the world. These guys were as if on the world stage, the apostles were regarded as so much dust on the floor to be swept up and thrown in the dumpster. We are the offscouring of all things unto this day. Now that is what it's like to be a servant of Jesus Christ. In fact, that's what it's like to be an apostle. Now, he points out, of course, if you're reading this and you're the Corinthians, immediately you should be pricked in your heart saying, how can we treat these men the way we do when they're treated the way they are by the world? He eases off a little bit. Here's what he says in verse 14. I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Now here he's addressing his beloved children in Corinth, and he has something to warn them about. The apostle is beginning his warning stage of ministry here. Remember, he's writing this from Ephesus. We found him setting up the Corinthian church in Acts uh, chapter 18. If you read on between 18 and the 23rd chapter, you'll see in Acts that he begins to warn the, the leaders of the church. He calls the elders of the church of Ephesus away, and he assembles them, and he warns them that when he departs, uh, that there will be grievous wolves that enter in, not sparing the flock. The wolves come in to eat part of the flock, and in. And he also points out that from your own selves, that is, from those elders right there in Ephesus, you got the problem coming in from the outside, and they have the problem rising up from the inside. Men will rise up, teaching perverted things, trying to take a following after themselves, for their own purpose. By the way. And for their own feeding, they'll feed themselves from the flock of God. Rather than feeding the flock, they'll eat the flock. Rather than giving milk to the flock, they'll milk the flock. Rather than growing the flock so that the flock will have wool, they'll fleece the flock. And we've had 2,000 years, really, okay, 1,900 and some years, of men milking, eating, fleecing the flocks of God. And they do it today. And the apostles, he says, I warn you, I warn you, I don't write this to shame you, I write this as children to warn you, for though you may have 10,000 teachers, and this is child trainers, though you may have 10,000 child trainers in Christ, you don't have many fathers. He doesn't say any, he says many. You don't have many fathers or those who act like fathers do. Well, fathers don't fleece their families. Fathers don't milk their families. Fathers build up their families. Fathers lay their lives down for their families. You don't have many like that. And friends, you don't have many like that. If you have any like that, then pay attention to him. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. The apostle points now to his own characteristics and says, Look, look for somebody like me. Wherefore, And now he says, verse 16, Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Don't follow these other guys that have risen up and that are trying to get you to follow them. Follow me, as the apostle said. Now, that was their way through these schismatic times of the Corinthian church. And friends, it's still our way. Follow the apostle. See what he has to say. Follow him. We're going to find out later that he describes that he he explains that schisms have to happen, they shouldn't, but they have to so that they that are approved will show up. Well, how do you know who's approved? Look here at the apostle, how he conducts himself, the kind of fellow he is. This is one approved by God. Well, now he says, for this cause, what cause? For the cause of all of this schism for the cause of all this division, I sent my representative to you. He says, For this cause I send unto you Timotheus, who is my beloved son, and faithful in the Lord, who will bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. He said, I'm going to send you a model. I'm going to send you uh, my, son, my son in the faith, Timothy, and he'll remind you of how I conduct myself. And that's his remedy, that's his only remedy that he can do for the Corinthians, is to send Timothy to model the behavior of one who follows the Apostle Paul. Now verse 18, Now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you. Now the Apostle begins to assert apostolic authority. He said some are blow-up guys. you got these blow-up fellas in the Corinthian church. I would say they have snappy dress and great hair. Blow-up men. Some of you are are blown up, as though I would not come to you. These would be blow-up men in overblown positions inside the local church. But I will come to you shortly, verse 19, if the Lord wills. And I will know not the speech of them which are puffed up or blown up, but the power. And now here the apostle is asserting himself. And he asserts himself not in word, but in power. And this is something that is remarkable about the apostle, and something that we see in the apostle, and something that we ought to see in every preacher, every leader in the church and that is great boldness and power and power. The apostle may not have preached with the best words; he may not have spoken with the most uh, with the most eloquent manner of speech in fact. His mind is so effulgent with many thoughts, I suppose it was impossible for him to have a great speaking style. Just too much content for that, and maybe he didn't work on his gestures all week long. By the time he got done being stoned to death and beat up so much, he probably didn't look very good in his suit. Well, he may have had great hair, but uh, I suppose that the apostle was not a very attractive person to look upon. And I suppose he was not necessarily that enjoyable to listen to. Maybe he didn't have very good jokes and stories. Maybe he just didn't know where to get the jokes and stories. Maybe when he gave a message, he tried to get meat out to the churches instead of clever little stories. And so when they held the scorecards up after the message, I suppose the apostle maybe would get, you know, an average of 7.5, because they'd throw out the high score and the low score, Maybe he would get Eastern European scoring, something like that. Whereas others who had fair speeches, devised to to deceive the simple, who were feeding their own bellies, they would get these consistent 9.5s. And then maybe they also preached only for 20 minutes, whereas the apostle would go on all night if they let him. And so that made him popular with the people because they could just be done with him. In any case, the Lord Jesus Christ preached as one that had authority and not as the scribes. That was his way of preaching. What good does it do to preach the word of God if there's no authority in it? In fact, all it does is blaspheme the word of God, as if the word of God has no hold, it has no command, it has no power. But it has power. And the Apostle Paul, whereas he may not have been the most articulate speaker, and he may not have been the most interesting to listen to, and he may not have been the briefest, and he may not have had the funniest stories, he did have the power of God. There used to be commonly referred to as the Apostle had unction. Now, you can tell when a preacher has unction and when he doesn't. And when he doesn't, well, then he's just talking like the world gives speeches, But the Word of God is to be preached with power. And the Apostle says, If I come to you, I will come to you in power. I'll come to you in power. And I'm not going to come to you in fancy speech. Even though I didn't come to you before in fancy speech, I'm still not going to come to you again in fancy speech. But I'm going to come to you in power. And now, by the way, he's warning those who oppose him. Now he's not talking to the children he has great affection for, he's warning those who oppose him. Some are puffed up as though I wouldn't come to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills, verse 19, and will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. So he said, I'll try their power. How do you want it? Shall I come to you with a rod in love or the spirit of meekness? Make your choice but the apostles willing to walk softly into the Corinthian assembly and carry a big stick. And don't you kid yourself, uh, those puffed up, blow up men, they were worried about that. Well, we'll look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5 next time. Until then, may God bless you and may you enjoy your Bible.